As the global community continues to navigate the COVID landscape, the Africa Study Group is collaborating with PodSafe Africa to explore the current realities of African youths and their perspectives towards a post-COVID climate. The Africa Study Group is an association promoting closer cooperation between Canada and Africa in all relevant domains. Specifically, PodSafe Africa will be working with Adiola Onofowa, who describes himself as an African indigene invested in creating and bridging value to promote the African diaspora in Canada. For today's conversation, we'll be focusing on Nigeria from the perspective of a Nigerian who lives in Nigeria called Tenny. Hi everyone, my name is Teniola Tayo. I am a public sector consultant. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Tenny about the parallels in lived experiences and development issues amongst African countries, particularly West African countries. We'll also be speaking about how African countries perceive the effects, influences of their colonial past in their current situations and why these perceptions may be. Finally, we'll be discussing the current role of Nigeria's colonial past in Nigeria's current state in the form of neocolonialism and the vestiges of colonialism. born in Kogi State, but then I lived in Lagos with my family up until I finished high school, after which I moved to Ghana. So Ghana as a West African country that I had been visiting, even as a child, because my father was actually born in Ghana. And then uh, I lived in Ghana for five years, and I left Ghana, came back to Lagos for about two months, then moved to Abuja for work. But in the course of my work, because I started working as, a, as, a, as an analyst with a think tank, and then I moved to the Nigerian Senate as a senior legislative aide. And while I was there, I learned about the ECOWAS parliament. So I got interested in, in West Africa and the wider West Africa region. And I planned a trip from Nigeria. So it was specifically from Abuja to Dakar in Senegal. So I went from Abuja to Lagos, from Lagos to Kutonu in Benin Republic, from Kutonu to Lome in Togo. And then I went to um, Bobadilwaso in Burkina Faso, from there to Bamako in Mali. And then from Bamako to Dakar in Senegal, that was the worst leg of the trip because I think it was more than 24 hours for that leg and it was 24 hours in a bus on the road. But then it was brilliant because I got to see how similar a lot of West African countries were to Nigeria, how even though you have Anglophone West Africa, Francophone West Africa, and to an extent Lusophone West Africa, there are many parallels. For example, you go to markets in Dakar, you go to markets in Lagos, they look very similar. It's, it's incredible to me. So um, yeah, then I moved to, to the UK for my master's and then I left the UK, went to Cote d'Ivoire as another West African country that I hadn't been to yet. I le- Cote d'Ivoire is like Lagos, Abidjan is like Lagos. So that was the, <laughs> the similarity to me. Then I went back to Senegal and now I'm back in Abuja, Nigeria. It's nice to be here. Thank you for joining us and thank you for giving us that brief history. And then, so now we're going to 
jump into um, the crux of the episode. So from all your experiences in these different parts of West Africa, how has that shaped your understanding of Nigeria as it is right now? So I mentioned that I got more interested in West Africa while I was in the Nigerian Senate. Uh, I was writing speeches or drafting speeches for the for the Senate presidents, Bukala Saraki at that time. I was part of the team that used to do the research to draft speeches and you know to guide other things that he was doing. And one of the things I worked on was for the ECOWAS parliamentary workshop on the West African single currency. So the West African single currency is a project that has been on for I think two decades now, where West Africa has said that they want to have a single currency across the region, a common currency called the ECO. So ECO sort of like from ECOWAS. And um, the idea is to improve trade within the region or across the region and just, you know, have stronger negotiating power or just have a stronger currency power for the in, in the international markets. Um, yeah, so I went to I, I worked on that speech and then I decided that, that I wanted to attend the workshop. I kind of squeezed my way into the ECOWAS parliament. I bleed my way, you know, I blocked my way in and I sat there among the parliamentarians and they had these very interesting discussions about the currency and about West Africa in general. And what I noticed was that a lot of the West African countries seem to be looking up to Nigeria for some kind of leadership, you know. So, and this was very strange to me because a lot of us in Nigeria, growing up in Nigeria and understanding Nigeria and its problems, we don't think that anybody should quite be looking up to Nigeria because we feel like we have a lot of problems to, to handle and to take care of. So it was it was strange to me and I didn't feel like at the moment, Nigeria cared enough about some of these other West African countries to the extent that they were looking at Nigeria. And I thought to myself that, okay, it seems like um, there's a role that we're supposed to be playing in this region that we may not be playing sufficiently and that I want to learn more about West African countries. And that was why I, I, I organized my visits, visits to these countries. And from being there, you know, I mean, I primarily visited Francophone West Africa because West Africa is more than 50% Francophone. And you see the difference in, in um, experiences and the difference in realities based on the different colonial experiences. But then at the same time, there are very clear parallels run through these different countries. So I was in Senegal when NSAS happened last year. And it was, I mean, I went through everything, like everybody that was in Nigeria because, you know, I was on social media going, watching everything that was happening. I even organized a mini protest somewhere in, in Dakar. I just called some, I called one of my friends and then she knew some other Nigerians. So we went somewhere in Senegal to try to like, um, just, just to mark the register that even though we were in Senegal, we wanted to, um, to be part of it. But then it was this year, I think, Senegal went through protests as well. So it was called the Free Senegal Protest. And for me, it was just one example of the parallels or the similarities in our lived experiences or in the similarities in our development issues. So the NSAS protest was primarily about um, police brutality, but then it was also kind of about governance issues and some of the things that happened, you know, where you had the looting of shops, you had um, the um, COVID um, warehouses that, you know, were right, if you could say rightfully um, looted because those things were supposed to be for the people. The Free Senegal protest was primarily or initially about political oppression. So there was a sense that the opposition was getting arrested because or because the incumbents as the current president, you know, was trying to, to suppress the opposition, although he was accused of rape. So the opposition guy was accused of rape and but they felt like um, there was a bit of extrajudicial behavior by the by the sitting um, government. 
but very quickly it morphed into wider governance um, issues, you know, similar to the answer. So answers was police brutality to governance issues. For free Senegal, it was um, political oppression to governance issues, especially inequality. And then you had similar things like the looting of, of, of shops, you know, so a lot of the things that we had during answers. And, you know, you see, you see those similarities, but then you now have the, the nuance of the context where because Senegal has a history with France and they're still struggling a bit with France and France's um, presence in Senegal, the looting was primarily targeted at French supermarkets in Senegal. So that's where you have the layer of nuance, but then fundamentally at the surface of it, it's the fact that um, these countries and these governments are not serving the needs of the majority of the population. And you have a whole mass of people that are getting left behind that are getting more and more impoverished, you know, uh, things in Senegal are super expensive also because you have a big expats community and um, they're driving the prices up for accommodation, for food, similar to Nigeria. Nigeria, I mean, it's a lot of other things, but then driving up their prices of accommodation for food. So it was very interesting to me to just see um, the similarities in these countries. And you go to Côte d'Ivoire, you see a lot of slums, you know, very similar to Lagos, and just realize that, wow, this challenge that we have is very much a collective challenge. And there'll be some benefits in trying to address them, address the challenges collectively. Thank you for sharing that, Jenny. I think one of the interesting things you highlighted is kind of this colonial tilt to how Senegal specifically, like, you know, approach some of the protests. How, and, and now that you see, like, hey, we have this like collective struggles we have across West and, and West Africa more broadly, how do you think? most of the populace kind of considers the colonial power's effect on their current countries and how that affects their current situation. Because it seems like there's still a little bit of, uh, I don't know if it's bitterness, but but maybe that's the word. Um, what's your experience on that so far? So do you mean specifically in Francophone West Africa? Uh, I'd love to, yes, Francophone West Africa, but I'd love to see how that parallels to even Anglophone West Africa. Mm. Um, so one of the things that you notice very quickly, if you live in Anglophone West Africa and you move to Francophone West Africa. So for me, I, I mean, I'm from Nigeria, I've lived in Nigeria all my life. And then I lived in Ghana for five years. So those were, Ghana and Nigeria are very similar, right? It's the same influences, the supermarkets look the same. One of the things that I even noticed from moving to Senegal was that, you know, the supermarkets that we have and the things that we have in our supermarkets are not necessarily Nigerian. They're very much, um, um, because of the influence that we have from Britain. So things like baked beans, right? You when you think about baked beans, you think about it as, a, as something kind of Nigerian because you've been eating it since you're a child. But then you go to Senegal and you can't really find baked beans in the supermarkets. So I just realized that, wow, even in many ways that we do not realize, there's, a, there's still these vestiges of colonialism, even in, in, in the sense of some of the things that we eat, the things that we buy, you know, and the way that it looks very different in, in these different countries. Another thing that you notice in Francophone West Africa, especially in a country like Senegal, I think Senegal very particularly because Senegal is known to have a very close relationship with France. You know, they claim to be France's special friend, you know, and some funny, funny things like that. There's even a funny story where one of the past Senegalese presidents said um, during the Second World War, I believe, that when Senegalese soldiers went to fight in the war, that they were given this special desserts because... <laughs> Because Senegal was a special friend of very, very, very silly, very, very silly thing. And you even see some things where, for example, when there are elections in France, they're followed very closely in Senegal. I didn't feel like we were that interested in British politics in Nigeria or even in Ghana. Ghana does feel a bit more proximate to 
um, the Queen in quotes. I think that they're a bit more interested in 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 Britain. But I didn't feel I, I didn't feel it was it was it was um it was as strong in Nigeria. Like I feel like if you even ask some Nigerians who is a prime minister of of the UK, I I don't think many I don't think random people know who that person is or even care what is happening in the UK. But in Senegal, everybody is talking about Macron. Like everyone is very tied to is everyone is still very connected to what is happening in France. There are some reasons for this, you know, it was the approach to colonialism. The UK um, had an approach that was called indirect rule. So where they couldn't, they didn't stay so much in the colonies, they just sent a few people and then used, they put, they took local people and put them in positions and used them to control everybody else. France had um, an approach called um, citizenship. So what they did was that they would take elites, so um, economic elites or whatever elites from their West African colonies, bring them to France and give them citizenship and then a lot of the uh, the West Francophone West African countries, their independence leaders, so the leaders that took over immediately after independence, had served in the French government at some point or the other. So there was a very very close um, link between France and these and these um, former French colonies. And what happened was that these guys were sort of um, representing both France's interest and the interest of, of their country. You, there's a funny thing that I found out a while ago where I think in Cote d'Ivoire. Was it Cote d'Ivoire, where one of the presidents actually had a tunnel built all the way to the French embassy in the idea that if there was a coup, he would escape to the French embassy. And you know, it's incredible, you know, this very close relationship that they that they that they have and that they continue to have. But then it's also become a lot of oppression because you have this consensus between the French elite and the and the and the West Francophone West African elite. And now you have the population, so young people and just the masses that do not like this anymore, and they think that this doesn't work for them. This is benefiting just the, you know, the minority elite. You have, for example, the um, I, I went I went to school at LSE, and um, one of my classmates was telling me how she used to regularly see the president of Cote d'Ivoire, that's Ouattara, jogging in France because he has a home there and he's almost always very often there. So I think that there's a bit of a difference in experience, but I think that even for those of us in Anglophone West African countries, I feel like we are not as much under the influence of Britain, for example. There are many influences that we do not realize that are still going on. So we, 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 we don't see it, but it's very much there. And I think that it would only be apparent to someone that let's say it's coming, it's coming from a Francophone West African country and seeing the way things are different. And then you now realize that a lot of the differences are coming from this former, former colonial, colonial leaders. So for West Africa, for Francophone West Africa, I would say that there's still a lot of tolerance um, from the elites. So they're still very interested in France. They're very tied to France. They go there all the time. A lot of the elites are also educated in France or they've served in the French military or things like that. But then there's a growing, I wouldn't call it anti-French, but then there's a growing movement that just says that, you know, this consensus or this pact that you guys have had for a while is not working for us, you know. You had Auchan as a French supermarket conglomerate that came and I think bought up some smaller supermarkets. Although to be fair, those supermarkets were not indigenous either. But then the idea that Auchan now is taking livelihoods away from um, local producers, because if you go to Auchan to buy oranges, sometimes it can even be cheaper by buying, than buying oranges on the streets because they have um, economies of scale. So there is very um, specific resentment against what they feel is representation of the continu continuation of um, French influence in, in these countries. And I should point out that um, when I got to Senegal the first time around, and I just saw how French everything was, I went to look at the data. So I went to look at trade data because I felt like they were importing a lot of French things rather than seeing, rather than me seeing more Senegalese things, I felt I was seeing a lot of French things. 
And I looked at the trade data and I saw that very actively. I think the numbers I saw then was that, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like if um, Senegal had exported $100 million um, worth of goods to France, France had in turn exported about $1 billion worth of goods to Senegal. So France was enjoying a very serious trade surplus with, with Senegal. And Senegal is a poor country, you know. So I think for that particular year, one thing that was driving the numbers was because I think um, Senegal had just bought um, planes from France. You know, I mean, is it, I think it's Airbus that is a French. Um, I know there's one, Boeing is American and Airbus is, is French, I think. And I was speaking to a friend of mine there in Senegal and she was telling me that the French uh, uh, president had visited Senegal not too long ago. And he was saying how he was coming for, you know, cooperation and development assistance. But meanwhile, what he was actually coming to do was to sell planes. And, and I literally saw it in the trade data that um, they bought these planes and it really um, showed up their, their deficits with France. So yes, there is that growing dissatisfaction in terms of the way the relationship is structured and people don't feel like they're getting, um, like a lot more people are feeling like they don't get, they're not getting the, the best of it. I mean, there's also the issue of the currency, the CEFA, that is tied to the French treasury and all of those issues. And for us on this side, I think, you know, one thing that we forget very easily in terms of the influence of Britain in, in Nigeria is the oil industry. So the fact that a lot of the major players or some of the major players in the oil industry are from British extraction and just the history of that and what that really looks like. So I think it, it has to do with extraction. It has to do with things like tax justice because, you know, some of the firms here are not there, like that are pretty in Nigeria and not contributing in the way that they ought to be back to the Nigerian economy. So it's a little bit of a more, it's a little bit of a different situation, but then there are still very much um, some of those lines of extraction that are very much still existing, even if they're a bit more below the radar versus France and um, Francophone West Africa. Of the 17 countries that make up West Africa, France had majority colonial power and colonized eight of these countries, including Senegal, Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso, Benin, Ivory Coast, and Niger. Britain colonized 14, including Gambia, Sierra Leone, Ghana, and Nigeria. These former British colonies and Liberia make up the Anglophone-speaking part of West Africa, while the former France colonies make up the Francophone-speaking part of West Africa. There remains Cameroon that has both an Anglophone and Francophone side. Thanks. Thanks, um, thanks a lot for that, Tenia. It's, it's, it's very in-depth. Um, when, when we talk about you know, colonial activities um, or when we assess our current state uh, within our country, Nigeria specifically, um, like you mentioned, we, we brush aside the colonial influences or we just take it with a very little grain of salt. Um, what's that role? I know you mentioned oil being a big part of that influence, but what's the current role of colonial, uh, shall I say, uh, history or past in Nigeria's present state? Um, looking at the you know, IPOB movements, looking at things like the Boko Haram ins um, insurgency, the kidnapping, there are educated people in parts of the diaspora that will come up with all these theories of, I want to be socialist, I want to be this, and all these foreign terms in Nigeria, do they really believe in those terms, those sides, you know, liberal, conservative, and whatnot? And also, do we understand or do we acknowledge that actually there are some colonial influences in the current dysfunction? 
Yes, so I, so I think there are two things. There's neocolonialism, the idea that there are ongoing influences, even in the present day, so from former colonial leaders to their um, past colonies, even things like trade. So you tend to see more trade between former colonies and their former colonial governments, for example. But there's also the second thing of the vestiges of colonialism. So some things that are still existing in the political structure or in the economic structure of the country that draw from the colonial project. I find colonialism very, very fascinating because if you look at the numbers, right, I think for many African countries, they were not colonized for more than 100 years in the actual colonialism project. So, I mean, there'd been a lot of things going on, but when you had the actual signing of um, those agreements, you know, it, and then the exit of colonialism for many African countries, it wasn't much more than 100 years. And to look at the radical changes that it's wrought on the economic fabric, on the social fabric, just the fact that I'm speaking English now, I find it amazing that a, an entire peoples, you know, adopted a language based on this relatively brief, you know, intervention in their history. I find that amazing and something that I've been um, hoping to look into more. So when you talk about the vestiges, it's, it's some things like, okay, why is it that African economies um, export raw materials? Is very literally because for the colonial project, you know, the colonial project um, at some point it was during the industrial revolution in the West and they needed raw materials for their industries. The industries were growing and they realized that African countries could pr provide the raw materials. But then apart from getting raw materials, they also needed markets for their goods. So it was very much an exchange, you know, taking out raw materials and then sending back um, finished goods, so manufactured goods from, from their emerging industries. And you had so that trade system set up. And that's why, for example, you usually have more advancements around the ports because that was where a lot of the activities were concentrated. And we have struggled to break out of that system because till date, a lot of African countries still primarily export raw materials and then they import a lot of finished goods. So that's one of the major vestiges of colonialism is it was called the colonial trade economy and many very, very few countries have been able to break out of it. For Nigeria very specifically, I mean, a lot of books have been written about the Nigerian colonial projects and, and many things that happened under that. Some people even like to trace police brutality. So things like police brutality in many different African countries to colonialism, because that was where sort of like the police states and using violence to, to enforce or using violence to suppress um, contestation. I mean, we know about the women's riots and things like that and the, the responses that they, that they got from the colonial government at that time. I think I was reading a book, I saw a paper that listed the names of women that were killed in one of the one of the women's riots in Nigeria. So people even trace things like that back to colonialism, you know, things like police brutality. Then there's just the, the, the fact of the brokenness of our political system, right? So when the, um, when the colonial, so like I said, for, 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 for Britain, it was in direct rule where they would pick people, put them in positions. And because the people knew that they owed their positions to the British colonial government, they, it was in their best interest to serve the government. So to be the ones collecting tax, to be the ones really like um, representing the interests of the British colonial government. And then when the British left, you know, initially, because the, the, the points that um, colonialism was ending, they initially don't expect that to happen. There are a few things that went on then because, you know, the war, the uh, Second World War had happened, there was depletion in resources. And then there was, there was a growing independence movement. So they thought that they actually thought that they would still be there for much longer. And then it turned out that things were ending very quickly. But then they wanted to find ways to maintain some kind of power over, over the colonial 
companies. So in the ways that they um, try to influence the selection of leaders there and the things that happened afterwards, it have they've contributed to the brokenness of our political system and the kinds of people that, um, that participate in politics in our countries. You know, because it's sort of like, it wasn't an organic emergence of leaders in, in whatever way that would be possible, but more like, um, more like an allocation of parts to a particular group. So you had, you know, different groups of, you had different societies brought together under colonial projects, borders were drawn around them arbitrarily. And then you had the external um, force as the colonial government there, I mean, by power, because they used their guns and, and things like that. But then they were leaving, and you know, they're leaving, but you have like a group of entities that were initially independent, they had their own leadership structures, they had things like that that were more organic to their societies. But then because you already have this entity that was created by the colonial government and somebody has to be at the head of it, you know. So that process of selecting the leader that would replace the British, you know, caused a lot of problems in many African countries. In Ghana, for example, you know, the, the Ashanti kingdom used to, be, used to be very strong because they were the cocoa producing kingdom. And when the colonial government was leaving, they did it, they felt like they should be the ones leading Ghana and not um, the people that were put in place. So it led to a lot of contestation in Ghana at that time, but then eventually they were able to resolve it. And in Nigeria, it's very similar. So the, um, the, the British were, were a bit more proximate to the Northern leaders and they played a role in, you know, in, 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 in sort of like, Giving more power to to that region. I mean, according to what some people what some people think, and that has continued to to cause problems in terms of a a, a bit of a sense of entitlement to power, or a, a bit of a sense of um yeah entitlement to power by a particular region. But also, I mean, with the colonial government left, and in very few years we we entered the civil war. So it just shows that you know the 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 arbitrary borders that were created and the entities that were joined together without any real organic emergence of, of or you know a selection of a leader or things like that caused problems very quickly after the colonial government ended. Even when you go to Rwanda, the genocide that they that they went through has been traced to some of the things that um colonial governments then did and, and their attempt to select who they felt should be the leader of a group of entities that maybe we're not originally, um, or would not originally have organically merged together. So I think that those are some of the vestiges. So you have the economic issue where we continue to be, um, because the, the colonial government was extractive. So we continue to sell raw materials and import finished goods because our industries are not as, as advanced as they ought to be. And just, I want to give an example. So when people talk about colonialism and the effects that it has, right? Some people like to argue and say, oh, you had um, Japan that colonized South Korea, I think, if I think, yeah, Japan to South Korea, and the fact that South Korea now is an advanced economy, you know, doing very well. So they like to say, why do Africans or why does Africa like to complain about colonialism? Look at these guys, and the Japanese colonization of South Korea was very violent. You know, they even had this thing where they used to take women and use them as sex slaves or, or things like that. But there was a little bit of a difference in the colonization there because Japan set up industries in South Korea while they were there. Because it was sort of like supposed to be an extension of Japan in a way, if you look at the if you look at the theory very closely, which was very different from the colonial project in many African countries. There was no intention to set up industries, it was very much to extract raw materials and then to sell the finished goods. So you have the economic um influences that remain, but you also have the political influences that remain in terms of the brokenness of our politics. Some people feel like the first crop of independence leaders were better, but then very quickly, um, because of the because of the system that had been put in place in terms of the people that had been placed in positions like 
um, chiefs and traditional leaders that were hand-selected and their own agitation to find ways to maintain power, even though the colonial government was no longer there. And the, you know, the, the, there was a way that that influenced local politics in, in these countries and sort of now led to, you know, I mean, according to some scholars, I feel like you had the first set or the first, second set of independence leaders, and they were more of the intellectual kind, kind of politicians. But then very quickly, it became the kind of politics that we're more familiar with today, where it was just whoever could get, whoever could secure votes, you know. And that is how the people that had been placed by the colonial government, because they felt like, okay, they could mobilize the votes of their communities. So they use it as bargaining power to, to maintain political influence and then to influence political outcomes or to even influence political process. So you had sort of a degradation in the quality of leadership that we have. So I think there are many, many, um, okay, yes, many, many influences. Those are the vestiges. When you talk about neocolonialism, it's more of a broader issue. You know, it has to do with, um, it has to do with just the idea that the global north continues to extract from the global south and the imbalances that that, that exist. I know for Francophone, first African countries, they like to refer to the currency that um, continues to be linked to, to, to the CEFA. And just the fact that nowadays, even when you don't have as much of um, an, an overt influence of a former colonial government, you have those influences still represented in their, say, business interests. So the you, you don't just look at what the government is doing, but you look at what the companies from that country is doing, because that's always, um, I mean, even the colonial project was, was initially led by companies, not, not the governments. It was, you know, so there's the idea that the, some of the companies that continue to exist in these countries are perpetuating the extractive um, um, framework or the extractive system where they are pretty in these countries, but then they're not, they're not, contributing back into the economies in the way that they ought to, given the value that they are extracting from, from these economies. So that's sort of part of the argument of neocolonialism, although it's a board that includes, I mean, they, they talk about post-colonialism, they talk about neocolonialism, but these are terms that include a lot of different issues. So I guess that's just one of the, one of the issues. We'll be back in two weeks with more of the conversation with Tenny discussing the security situation in Nigeria and its economic impacts. In the meantime, we would love to know your thoughts on the episodes so far, including our conversation with Chucky. You may email us at podsafeafrica at gmail.com with your thoughts. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on all of your listening platforms.